I don't know if Eddie said this, but uh, he and his wife, they had a baby on Wednesday. Okay, let me clarify. She had a baby on Wednesday. And, uh, and then here he is leading worship. So we appreciate that. Um, but pray for uh, their little one as they, as mom and baby both are kind of recovering from all of that. Um, so we've been in, in a, uh, a series in the book of Jonah the last few weeks. And uh, we continue that today. I want to ask you a question starting off. How do you feel when unbelievers rebuke believers? You see this happen in our culture sometimes where it, oftentimes it will be a, bit, a big public deal, big public shouting match about some issue. Um, but you often will see where the unbeliever is rebuking the believers or the unbelievers are rebuking the church in some way. And um, it doesn't always go well and Christians don't always look the best in those situations if you can think of someone in your own mind. And so today we're going to see in a couple of little verses, there's a slight rebuke from some unbelievers to a believer, the unrighteous rebuking the righteous. We're going to look at this today in the book of Jonah. Remember, Jonah is a prophet told by God to go to a city that's wicked. What's the city called? Remember, Nineveh. And um, Nineveh is part of what empire? Do you remember? The Assyrian. Good job. Someone paid attention. Um Syrian Empire, and its leaders were super, super cruel. I did not say cool. I said super cruel. There's an R in there somewhere. And, uh, and they were incredibly brutal people. Now, a Jew would have been fearful to go into this um, empire, this, this city, and preach to that city. There are places I can think of that are like that today. Like when I've, I've, got, I've, I've had friends that have gone to the Middle East, and they've been uh, missionaries there. And they describe stories of they, – I mean, they don't know people that have had the horrendous things happen like they heard in the news. But they at least know people that they'll get arrested, they'll get put in jail for various things, um, sharing their faith. And so Jonah is going to a place where he knows that he might get put to death for what he's about to tell these people. And so Jonah is told to go preach to these people that he, he knows about that are really, really cruel. So after God tells him to go to the city of Nineveh, Jonah hops on a boat to a place called Tarshish, which some believe is all the way over in Spain. And then God sends a great storm to get him to repent while he's on this boat with these other sailors. Now, it's amazing what we can learn from just a couple of simple verses. We, we spent all of last week on two verses. We're spending all of today just on two verses. And we said last week that our running from God usually leads to some kind of storm in our life, a storm of our own making. We also talked about last week how um, at times we're caught up in a storm because of someone else's making as a result of what they've done. So I'm sure some of you have experienced this. You have experienced it firsthand, whether it's um, you're the, you've experienced your family going through a divorce, you have experienced abuse, you have experienced uh, friendship issues. It may be that someone else sinned. And cause the storm, but you're the one that's caught up in it. And it's not really your fault, but you're having to deal with it. And this is exactly what, um, what place these sailors find themselves with Jonah, the position they find themselves in. So look at Jonah chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5. And it says, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they, were hur they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down, had lain down and was fast asleep. 
So these sailors are afraid. This must have been a massive storm because these are men that are on the water a lot, and they're freaked out by the storm. Um, how many of you all have ever been on a cruise in the middle of a storm at some point in your life? Raise your hand. Anybody? A few of you have. Um, so I've never, I've actually decided I'm never going on a cruise in my life because I don't do the seasick thing very well. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a person that doesn't do roller coasters. I get sick really easily. And so unless you want to see me throw up, like we will never go on something like that together. So um, I don't have a strong stomach for the sea. I get seasick just watching that show Deadliest Catch. I can't even watch that show and not feel what they must be feeling. Uh, when my wife and I, um, before we had kids, we went on this little um, excursion. We were in South Padre, and there was this dolphin cruise. And you could go in this little, like, the Bay Area where it's kind of calm. And they'll, they'll, they, they get the dolphins to swim around the boat. It's pretty cool. So we did that. And then there's a point where the captain takes the boat out into the Gulf, which I didn't know about. And so we're going out into the Gulf now. And it's like the waves are not high, but it's like you're on this boat, and it feels like this thing is just moving, right? And so they go out in the Gulf, and they just turn around and come back in. That's all they do. But at that point, I'm at the point, I'm like, where's a trash can? Where's a trash can? Because that's, that's how um, sensitive I am to that sort of thing. So for, for, for these men to be freaked out by this kind of a storm, it has to be pretty big because these men are used to this kind of thing. And so um, being on a boat in the middle of a storm would be my own version of hell, just to be transparent with you this morning. And so these men are terrified, though. These men are terrified, which speaks to how great the storm was. And they start crying out to their gods. And they're so frightened that it says they overthrow cargo. So how great must the storm be for them to take what they're, they're, they're taking from point A to point B and throw it overboard? So you know this has to be a pretty intense storm. They're crying out to their gods. And they would only throw over the cargo if they truly feared for their lives. And so where is Jonah in the middle of all this? Well, he's down on, in the belly of the ship, and he's taking a nap. Um, how can Jonah sleep in this setting? As you're going to see later on in the story, Jonah doesn't mind dying. He really doesn't mind dying. And so I don't know all of his motives. I don't know if he's like, just exhausted because running from God is exhausting. Or I don't know if he's, what his motive is here, but it would seem to me that Jonah's not all that concerned about whether or not he lives or dies in this scenario. And so he's down there taking a nap. We do know later in the story we're going to see that he would rather die than go to Nineveh. Maybe that's why he can sleep in a storm. And these sailors, they, they rouse him awake and they say, why aren't you praying to your God? You see, they believed in many gods. And they're saying, we're praying to our gods. Why aren't you praying to your God? And so his last statement is strange because in the story here, the, the sailor says, perhaps your God will give us a thought. I mean, they'll need more than a thought, right, in this situation. They need to be rescued here. So there's some irony here in the story that I want you to see. Jonah rejected God's call to preach to Nineveh because he didn't want to talk to pagan people about God. But now he's on a boat talking to pagan people about God, right? And what's more, 
is God sends the prophet to point the pagans toward himself, but now it's the pagans pointing the prophet to God, to his God. So even though they don't know much about the one true God, they've not heard of him. But look at what they do know. In the following verses, we're not going to read those today. We'll read them in the the coming weeks. But in the following verses, you're going to see that these men, they recognize evil and sin. They have an understanding of evil and sin. They wonder who is sin to cause this great storm. And so they, they cast lots. We're not sure how this took place. Maybe they took popsicle sticks and they wrote names on them and they decided like who's going to be they threw them out and they and they, whoever the, however they cast lots the lot was cast to jonah and now jonah has everyone staring at him and they know that okay you're the cause of this great storm and so eventually jonah admits it and then later in chapter one these sailors have turned to god in worship as a result of the scenario now i want to pause here and make some observations to you these pagan sailors were deeply affected by Jonah's presence, and it led them to turn to the one true God. But it had nothing to do with Jonah's great witness, or his own heart for God, or him living on mission. It had nothing to do with that whatsoever. They turned to God despite Jonah, not because of Jonah. And so you might say it like this there are times when God uses us despite our disobedience. There are times when you and I can see some spiritual fruit, but it's of no credit to us. We might really even be far from him, and we see some spiritual fruit in someone else's life as something we've said or done, but it's no credit to us. And just because we see God using us does not mean that we're in close communion with him. Sinclair Ferguson writes, no matter what our gifts are, we may find ourselves in Jonah's position. God uses us for his glory, and yet our hearts are not in tune with his. Beware of mistaking usefulness to God for communion with God. You and I just can't, we can't look at the end end result of something and say, you know, see, God used me. God and I must be close This is one of the biggest dangers, I think, especially for those of us that are in um, ministry, like in jobs like what I'm in. This is especially dangerous for people that are in my my position or my situation. You know, early in uh, ministry, I kind of went through several phases of, I guess, being okay with what God's called me to do now. And so I've told you this story before. I'll tell it briefly again. But um, I, I didn't have some grand plan to become a pastor. I was actually quite opposed to it. And some might say, I could see you doing that. I'd be like, no, 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 not me, not me, not for me. And then I had a a pastor invite me to Texas to be an intern. So I worked at this one church for all through undergrad and then um, for four years. And then now is the time for me to figure out, like, what are you going to do with your life? And I really grew to enjoy ministry in that way. But I was like, not a full-time thing. That, that's like church politics. There's like all kinds of crazy stuff. I don't want to get involved in that. I'll get a regular job and just volunteer in the church in some capacity. That's what I thought I would do. And then time went on. I started feeling the pull towards seminary and started seeing myself doing this maybe full-time. And then 
Um, three years later, I come to Temple, and now I'm like a junior high pastor here at TBC. And I will tell you that one of the hardest things for me when it came to um, uh, there were several things I was fearful of when it came to ministry. I mean, getting on the stage and speaking in front of people was like a terrifying prospect in my in my estimation. I was like, I want no part of that. But God's called me to do this, right, at this point. And I will tell you that there, when you, your, your first time, especially, I never worked with junior high kids before at that point, not even as an intern. And so here I am in this room on this stage with a bunch of junior high kids. And I'm looking at them going like, what in the world am I doing right now? And having to preach to these kids. And I will tell you, there was a dependence that I felt with God because I had to. Like getting on this stage, walking up those steps, getting on this stage and preaching to students that I didn't even know yet was a terrifying thing for me at that time. And so what begins to happen, though, is after a few years, and you kind of get your feet under you and you feel like, all right, I can do this. This is all right. Then what happens? The dependence begins to lessen and lessen and lessen and lessen. And you start feeling like, you just start leaning into your gifts and start thinking, well, I got this. I can do this. This isn't that hard. And so early in ministry, there is this utter dependence that you feel upon God. And then as you start to age through, you start to think, you know, you start going, you know what? I prepared this sermon. I'm not sure I even prayed this week. I got up here and I just pulled it off, just did it. And I will tell you that there are there are some times where I I realize I'm leaning a lot more into gifting than I am into grace. That's what happens. And it's the trajectory that many of us are on whenever we're in these kind of positions. And I want to now turn it to you because this should serve as a caution for all of us in the room, my leaders, myself. And also for you as the students. For our leaders, we, as we make disciples, many of us can get on this stage and pull it off or lead a discussion or go meet with a student. We can accomplish some great things from a human perspective. But how is, how is our walk with God? Is there a, is there a vibrancy to it? Is there a realness to it, an authenticity to it? And for the students that are here, listen, we're about to enter into a my favorite time of the year, my, the favorite season of the year for many of us here. And there's going to be impact. There's going to there's Mission Galveston, there's New York City mission trip, there's the UK mission trip. But listen, as we enter into these these things that all of us look forward to all year. We cannot mistake ministry activity for a genuine walk with Jesus. You can't do it. These experiences, they create this emotional high, and and what you feel in those times isn't a bad thing. God has given us emotion, and they are his gift to us. But what does your walk with Jesus look like in the middle of October or in the middle of February? The Christian life is just that. It is a walk. It's going to be one foot in front of the other for the rest of your life. And sometimes a walk gets really boring. 
and your feet are going to hurt, and you're going to want to bail. And I love that so many of you want to serve and be active, and I love that it genuinely excites you. But what scares me is how many of us do it without communing with God ourselves. D.L. Moody once said, I have never found a useful Christian who wasn't a student of the Bible. When I first came on staff here, I told you that I was first a junior high pastor, and I was having lunch with a leader that was on my team at the time. They, they've, moved, they've long moved away from, from this area now, but and he was a great guy. And he would actually speak sometimes on the stage, and we were talking one time over lunch, and I just said, hey, so what are you, what are you reading right now? What, what's God showing you? Like, what are you reading? How are you growing? And he goes, he goes, I don't really like to read. And I was like, well, but you're kind of working with students and you're, and you're a Christian. <laughs> you know, like I was trying to push, like, that's kind of part of the deal, you know, <laughs> is that you don't, get a, you don't get to play that card on that one. He says, I don't like to read. I was like, well, see, in other ways he told me that he liked to connect with God. But let me, let me tell you something, guys. Like, you cannot be a useful Christian and not ever crack open your Bible. And listen, coming here, this is like coming to a restaurant. I mean, you guys literally have food in front of you. But it's like coming to, there's a prepared meal on the stage for you. We kind of just spoon feed it to you once a week and on Wednesdays. But you got to feed yourselves. You've got to learn to feed yourselves. And so we can't play the card that I just don't, I don't get into, I don't read, I don't do that. That's not me. Like there's not a useful Christian who's also not a student of the Bible and I think many people can get active in high school in mission and doing activities. But what's it going to look like for you at the age 25, 35, 45? You see, I want you in this I want you useful for God and for the church for the rest of your life. Not just for what's coming up in a couple of months. We can't ever mistake activity in the church for communion with God. And so I think this story shows us some really important things, and I think it shows some other things as well. Because we have Jonah, the believer, getting rebuked by those who don't believe. These men, they're terrified. They're crying out to their false gods, and Jonah's downstairs taking a nap. And so they go, wake him up, and they say, why aren't you helping us, Jonah? And the thing is, he didn't seem to even care about them. You've got the non-believer kind of rebuking the believer here. So I want to bring that into, into today's time. I'm going to ask you this question. Same question I asked you earlier. Does the unbelieving world have a right to rebuke Christians and the church? I think some Christians don't believe so. They think, no, they don't have that right. They don't see things the way that we see them. What right do they have to tell us what to do or how to think or how to be? I think some Christians don't think that the world has a right to do that. But when the world calls out the church for its sins, some Christians get defensive and rebuke the world right back. But that's not a win. That's never a win. We took our survey last couple of weeks in here, in last Sunday. And one thing that I've always found really helpful is the question, just a simple question, do you consider yourself a follower of Christ? And 
every year for the last four years, it's been about the same. About one in seven of you, so about one per table approximately, would say you would not claim to be a Christian. And listen, I love that you're in here. I love that you still come in here. Now, your parents might be making you. I don't know. But I love that you're in here. And I love that because um, we want to make this a place where you can explore and have some questions, have some doubts. And we are going to try to guide and direct and support and give you wisdom. But we want you in here wrestling with it in here instead of just bailing on the whole thing and saying, forget it. I'd much rather have you in here. And I love that you're in here. But sometimes you'll also say things on those surveys that kind of rebuke us a little bit. And that's okay. You might say things like, you know, this place isn't very friendly or, um, or, or this or that. You might say something along those lines. And, and listen, do you have the right to rebuke us? I would say, yes, you do. You've got the right to rebuke us. And when I think about what some of you all have to go through just to get down here on a Sunday morning, it, it blows my mind that you still come into this building. Like when I think of myself in high school, and if I had just moved into the area like some of you have, and having to walk across some crowded parking lot and risk your life, and then walk into a building where you didn't know anybody, and it's raining sometimes, and you walk in and you're like, am I going to know anybody? I mean, you have all those questions. And listen, I don't take that for granted that that's where many of you are. We're so grateful that you're actually in this, in this, in this room right now. But listen, you have, wherever you are, the world has the right to rebuke us at times. The unbeliever has the right to rebuke the believer sometimes. Even Jesus says, I think, along these lines, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you realize the other side of the coin on that, that verse is that we're supposed to be living a certain way in front of a watching world. And if we're not, then they've got a right to call us out. If we're not showing visible love and tangible acts of service and sacrifice to those around us, then we deserve the call out. And in the Jonah story, you've got these unbelieving sailors. They're calling out the believing prophet. And they're the first ones to mention God. They mention God before he does. Have you ever been in a situation where the unbeliever brings up God before you do? When I was, I told you when I first came to, to Texas, I first moved to Arlington. And it's a brand new city for me. I'm brand new. I'm, I was going to be a sophomore in college. And to save money, I was going to go to this school called Tarrant County Junior College, which sounded exciting to me. And everyone called it, it was a school that nobody wanted to go to in the Arlington area, but I was coming in from out of state, like going to this junior college for my first semester. And I just started working at this church as an intern, and now I'm going to classes at this school. And a few weeks in, there was this girl who sat next to me in class, and we had many conversations. Now, not like that. Hey, not like that. It's, it was it was not like that at all. And uh, she asked what I did for work, 
and I told her about my um, job at this church, and, and we're a few weeks into the class, and, uh, and she acted surprised. She acted surprised that I was a Christian. Now, I hadn't done anything like that was like visibly, you know, that would say otherwise, but for some reason, a few weeks in, she just went, I had no idea that you were a Christian. And she wasn't, but she didn't think that I was either. And I remember being humiliated, thinking, here's a person I've been talking to for the last several weeks in class. She had no idea about my faith and kind of called me out on it indirectly. I think we forget that people are made in God's image. And even if they aren't believers yet, they're created to worship. And I think people are more open than we think they are. So these men, they're worshiping false gods, but they're also open to knowing about Jonah's God. And even though they don't know Jonah's God, we see something that's called common grace. And here's what common grace is. Common grace is the idea that God gives gifts of wisdom, moral insight, goodness, and beauty across humanity, regardless of race or religious belief. Now, before you freak out on that statement, I am not saying that all roads lead to God or that people don't need Jesus. They absolutely do. But I am saying that God gives what's called common grace. It's not the same thing as his special grace or his saving grace, which is the grace that is bestowed upon you at salvation. But common grace just simply means that you don't have to be a believer to be good at stuff. All right? That's a way to summarize that. There are lots of people that are not believers that are really skilled and very talented at all kinds of different things. And we experience the fruit of God's common grace in their lives all the time. This is common grace. And so in the boat here with Jonah, there are these men. And in a sense, they seem more righteous than Jonah. If you look at the surface... I mean, he's the believer, and they're, the, they're not yet believers, but they appear more righteous than he does. I think we can look all over our culture and, and see unbelievers that are doing some amazing things. And it's why some of you guys will look at your unbelieving friends and you'll say, you know, maybe I don't need all this Christianity because my friends are doing just fine without it. And listen, common grace means that sometimes the unbelievers are going to look more righteous than the believers. And believers sometimes act far worse than we expect them to. Now listen, you shouldn't allow this to cause you to, to throw out Christianity because you see this sometimes. Because what's amazing is the Bible actually talks about the Bible talks about it. It's amazing to me whenever people throw out Christianity because of evil in the church. And then you open up the Bible, and what do we see? We see evil in the church. Read the letters of Paul. Like we see Paul addressing evil in the church in the Bible. And so people go, I can't believe this stuff. There's too much evil in the church. I'm like, it's in here too. How can you throw this out if it's talking about it in there, right? And so we don't just, 
reject it because we see some good things in unbelievers and some bad things in believers. You know, if there was another person in the boat watching this thing play out, just looking at the outside between Jonah and these sailors, he'd probably choose the sailors and choose their God, their false gods over Jonah's true God. Just looking at them as people. And so here's my encouragement to you. Don't let the failure of Christians or the church push you away from the church or the truth of the gospel. You and I tend to think of Bible characters as heroes. And Jonah, I hope you've seen it by now, Jonah is no hero. He's an example of what not to do. He seems indifferent to these sailors, doesn't seem to care. Jonah falls asleep on a boat during a storm because he would rather die than go to the city of Nineveh. And it reminds me of another story when someone else fell asleep on a boat during a storm. In the Gospels, Jesus and the disciples are on the Sea of Galilee and a storm rises. And where's Jesus? He's asleep. The disciples wake him up. They're begging him to calm the sea. And Jesus gets up and he rebukes the disciples and he rebukes the sea. Jonah's indifferent to the men in his boat, but Jesus cares deeply for the men in his boat. Jonah would rather die than see the lost saved. But Jesus died so he could save the lost. And so you're going to see in this book how it all points to Jesus and to the gospel. I'm going to pray for you as you guys go into your discussion. God, thank you for how on every page of Scripture, how it points to you and to your grace and to your mercy. And God, I pray for um, just the students that are in this room right now. I pray that um, as they think about these questions that they're going to go through in the discussion time, I pray that um, that you would be over that time right now, just tilling up their heart with whatever they're walking through in their life at this moment. And I pray that uh, the church would be a place that they run to instead of running away from, in spite of what their experience may have been. And I pray, God, that you would meet them here with your grace and mercy this morning, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. Spend some time on your discussion questions.